This is Nullius in Verba, a podcast about science. What it is and what it could be. It's co-hosted by me, Smriti Mehta from UC Berkeley. And me, Daniel Lakens from Eindhoven University of Technology. This is the first of two episodes on the Anti-Creativity Letters, a very creative piece of writing by Richard Nisbet, written from the perspective of a senior tempter to a junior tempter on practices that can help discourage creativity in young scholars. We discuss themes in the article that we've touched upon earlier in the podcast, talk about whether and how much we agree with the senior tempter, and whether we relate more to the senior tempter, the junior tempter, or the temptee. Enjoy. Okay, Daniel. So today we are going to discuss the anti-creativity letters by mm -hmm. Richard Nisbet. And I just wanted to ask you, when you were reading the anti-creativity letters, whose perspective did you most relate with? Like, were you reading it, <laughs> thinking of your, like, the, what you do as the advisor as a mentor, mm. or what you might do as when you were a student, or maybe you thought of a, of yourself as a tempter. I don't know. Uh, mm. Yeah, mm. like which perspective yeah. did you most sort of relate to as you were reading it? Yeah, I, I think the first person, basically the the mentor of the tempter, I guess, right? The advisor of the tempter. The yeah. advisor yeah. of the student. No, the advisor of the tempter. Oh, the person who's giving the advice. Yeah, so the person who's writing about the, Snidely. The, the writing the letters. Snidely. Snidely. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh, yes, interesting. I was thinking of Snidely. Oh, okay. That's yeah, fascinating. Yeah, you're even surprised that Yeah, that's a, yeah okay. I am. No, no, no. Wow. Oh, which perspective did Tell you take more. when you were oh, reading? Oh, well, the, the grad student, of course. I mean, I read it when I was oh, a grad yeah. student first, and so it mm -hmm. totally made sense to think, okay, is what what he's saying like how does it, you know, map on to what my experience has been like? Um mm -hmm. It makes sense. Yeah. But I, I listened actually to the um, original. So this is based on uh, an original. Right. So you read the, yeah, C.S. Lewis. Exactly. The screw tape letters. Screw tape letters, which this is based on. And then there's a little bit at the end of this book where he writes a second part. So this was apparently extremely popular oh, in the yeah, day must be. when he wrote mm -hmm. it. And then he paused for a while writing these letters. So I think they were a weekly thing. Ah, he wrote one every week or something with nice. an observation of human behavior. Uh -huh. and, and then he didn't write them for a while. And there's a little bit of introduction at the end where he says, I was just so much getting into the role of this <laughs> character. I would see the world through, you know, oh. somebody who's trying to manipulate people all the time. It's so tempting to take on this role uh -huh. um, that he didn't want to do it for a while. But then eventually he got back to it anyway. Uh -huh. So I think it's quite natural to put yourself in this position. The author had this as well. So I think it's okay. That's fascinating. But it makes sense that you think about the grad student, of right. course. But I mean, but then if you're thinking of yourself as a tempter, then you have to be, yeah, the senior tempter, um, mm -hmm. teaching a junior tempter. Then, but you have to be in a position where you can influence somebody who's influencing somebody in return, right? 
Yeah. Well, I, I don't know if I'm in that position, but I definitely yeah. think about like, okay, so how can we manipulate? How can we train other people to manipulate other people? Uh, what to do? Is this just giving a lot away of like my role in science where I see myself? Oh my God. Okay. Well, maybe this is too. Shall we just get at it? Like uh, the letter, because this is getting too personal. Yeah. Too, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it says too much about what I want. I want to manipulate people well, all the time. And, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So what I, I mean, I just, I love the anti-creative letters. Every time I read them, they're just so fun mm -hmm. to read. And it, um, mm -hmm. I especially love the bit where he's just um, like, I mean, it's, Richard Nisbet has obviously written it, but there's a point where he's just sort of roasting himself saying yeah. that, oh, yeah. I'd had no, <laughs> no. Yeah. No and talent course, for I mean, biology, and the only thing you can see in the microscope yeah. was his own eyelashes. There's, I think I sent you a clip of myself where I said it, yeah. where I recorded it initially, <laughs> and I couldn't stop laughing. <laughs> yeah, that was very funny. We don't have a blooper section at the end, we but should. it could have been in there. And yeah, yeah, no, it was clear. And even even without, it's clear that you're greatly enjoying yourself when you're reading it. And I hope other people enjoy it as much uh, yeah. as, as you did. Yeah, and. Um, yeah, no, because it's extremely, extremely funny. And I should say, this is also a genre of um, mm. written written contributions in the scientific literature right. that I think we need more of. Yeah. We just need more people who write sort of, you know, unconventional kind of papers that are kind of funny, but still a lesson. You know, I think this is a, a category of papers we, we should see more of. Um, yeah. Well, given my personality, I sort of agree but also, I'm mm. like, uh, but if you're doing cancer research, you should focus on that, right? We can do be, be like, oh, we'll write funny papers because it's not like anything else was we're doing is that helpful anyway. So might as well bring some. No, but I think, I yeah. think there are even journals where I, there's something I should look it up what it is. But I think it's the British Medical Journal or uh -huh. something has um, a Christmas special where oh, there's always also some sort of funny article that's uh. not seriously intended. So it's a thing that even in, in oh, medicine... Oh, you're they right. Do it, I think, yeah. I, think mm -hmm. I remember in one lab um, that I used to attend meetings for, which was a, it was in the Department of Psychiatry, and they had mm -hmm. one lab meeting specifically for like close to Christmas, like a holiday oh, where... Cause for what, paper. What, yeah, because what would happen was each week people presented a paper we discussed a mm -hmm. paper and then this one time we just went through like papers related to christmas so that was kind of fun mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. you see it also mm -hmm. in mathematics and physics sometimes right there's that one paper where it's like oh a failed attempt to combat you know writer's block writer's and it's just yeah, an, yeah. Empty it's an empty page <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> stuff yeah. like that yeah okay yeah. I, okay i agree i agree we probably need more of that but yeah. here there's actually a real lesson yeah in it. so it's a very nice way to make people reflect on something yeah. i think this format uh, also of the letters kind of works really well. And that's, of course, C.S. Lewis's original invention to come up with this mm. setting where sort of like a devil-like character is trying to manipulate people not to do good stuff. And in the original, it's just human behavior. Right. Um, but it's just like a stuff. It just works very well. It's yeah. a smart approach. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very well done. Works really well. Um, but it makes us reflect on how to be a creative researcher. That's the goal of this letter, right? I mean, of course, the tempter is trying to make sure that scientists are not creative. That's mm -hmm. the point. Right. And there are all these things that, you know, you can do or manipulate people into so that they're not creative. And there's a whole list of things for actually career stages mm -hmm. throughout the letters. The, the yeah. person who's being influenced goes through their career. And at every stage, there are tricks you can do to make sure yeah. they're not creative. So it's, yeah, very nice. Very nice. And he also mentions how in some stages, he's like, well, the way it's structured is perfectly in line with <laughs> what we want to do anyway. 
right? And yeah. I remember as a grad student, one of the things that really stood out to me was when he talks mm. about, um, oh, you, you know, most students think that doing science is like writing a novel where you kind of just sit yeah. by yourself and just come up with this great idea. Mm-hmm. And that and, and the analogy with like, oh, but it's more like m- making a movie where you're actually mm-hmm. working with somebody who knows how to do it. And that sort of really resonated with me because at least in my my experience, and it's of course, it doesn't have to be everybody's experience, even in my department. Right. But it's it was like mm-hmm. everybody was so siloed off as graduate students. You all just mm-hmm. like had your own thing and you did your own thing on your own yeah. with just a little bit of. Um, so I thought. Oh yeah, that's uh it's good to know that I'm not like it's not it's not crazy for me to think that this is maybe not the best way to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But maybe before we start I have one question that I got from this. And I got uh-huh. a little bit so I I like it a lot and I also disliked it a lot, but I the- mean because <laughs> it's working, you know, because it's doing what it's supposed to do. Right. And yeah. and and because I think, actually, I felt maybe personally just, you know, it was just speaking to me because mm-hmm. you recognize yourself in some of the things you do that make you do not create exactly. things. I mean, that's it. So it's doing exactly what it's supposed to do. But of course, my defense mechanism kicked in and I thought, but maybe we shouldn't even be doing creative work. What is this even? Like come up with creative stuff all the time. Uh, it's sort of against doing yeah, just normal stuff that needs to be done or run-of-the-mill kind of studies. And then sometimes I thought, yeah, but maybe we need more of those, actually. Do we need so much creativity or do we need to just figure out some stuff that we already thought was worth doing, but we need, you know? So oh. that, that it made me think about this a bit. I see. So that's interesting because that's not how I read creativity in this context. In the sense that, I mean, when we think of the word creativity, we think things that are sort of novel or new or like a painting mm-hmm. that's sort of different, right? Like creative in the sort mm-hmm. of artistic sense, almost. Um, mm-hmm. Like you're doing something that's like, like this, this, this article is creative, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like that's, yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. but I thought of creative here in the sense of creating something, right? Uh, just Which is just producing worthwhile. stuff, exactly. Which I mean, we are producing knowledge. That is the goal. That is a creative process, right? So that's, uh. that's how I think of it. In this context, the word creativity, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, we'll come back to it because I think it is an opinionated piece about the type of things you should be doing right. and not doing, for example, that lead to, you know, not just generating anything, but specific, yeah, I think. Okay, okay, but yeah. I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's, mm. a, yeah, so, yeah, I think, I'm, yeah, we are we are all creating things all the time, I mean. We are, but, but maybe uh, we can start with one of the first things that is mentioned as a thing to do to make you more creative. Or maybe less creative, which I absolutely, or, yeah. <laughs> which I absolutely loved, mm-hmm. because here he's talking about the kind of people you should get him, get your student to associate with, and yeah. he's saying <laughs> move him away from like nor- don't let him talk to normal people, get him to hobnob exactly. with like colleagues, and especially towards the sneerers. Exactly. This is, of course, already getting me on the wrong foot here <laughs> yeah, because I yeah. think maybe I have, yeah, yeah, okay, go on. <laughs> and the reason I, I was like, oh, this is so funny because he's like, yeah, nothing so useful as sneers, especially if they're intelligent and witty. And at the time, mm-hmm. especially during grad school, I, I mean, and still do, mm-hmm. I mean, I do engage a lot with people in the open science movement. And I do mm-hmm. think that some of them can be a little bit sneery. Uh, mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm, There's a lot mm-hmm, of sneering mm-hmm. and sort of looking down on completely right old psychology theories and just sort of the the spirit of the discipline. And mm-hmm. that I've never been for. Like to me, that has always been like, no, we shouldn't sneer at 
mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other side is also terrible, right? If you're, if you're, he talks about oh, in the age of have a nice day, right? Yeah. Where nobody's giving you any criticism at all. Actually, that comes later. But what are your thoughts on the sneerer bit? What, what do you think about that? That felt too personal? The sneerer part, maybe, I think. But I'm in agreement with the first part. So mm. you want to stay in touch with normal people. Yeah, I think absolutely. In, in doing science, there's a real risk that you get suckered into yeah. something that is so super specific mm-hmm. that you think, why are we doing this? Right. And and literally, if you would ask yourself, then it's because somebody else did this other thing and they did this thing. And then, you know, I was talking to somebody and they said, yeah, somebody should do a variation on this mm-hmm. with this and this. And you're like, yeah. So I think this is basically a call to keep the real world in mind uh, yeah. in your research and, and study things that are at least real in some way. And yeah, it's a little bit like when we talked about Schmess, um, where uh, Dennett said, if you talk about your topic and a master's student thinks, what the hell is this about? Then you might be doing Schmess. And, and this is a similar thing. You have to be in contact with normal people mm-hmm. and uh, you come up with normal research ideas, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And it's so easy to sort of wrap your ideas into fancy labels and then pretend like mm-hmm. you're looking at something that's run of the mill or like normal thing that that people could relate to, but you make it into this complicated phenomena like, oh, temporal discounting and, you know, something, something, mm-hmm. uh, which would not mm-hmm. make any sense to any normal person. And sometimes you, th- that also affects it that people have done it before. And I don't know if you notice it, but I definitely like sometimes when I read papers, like from the mm-hmm. 60s, 70s, 80s, the language is the language is so much simpler mm. and the yeah. thoughts yeah. are so much more complex, if that mm. makes sense. Like I will read things mm-hmm. where they're written in such simple language, but it makes you just go, ah, you know, mm. like it makes you think. Mm. And I and I don't yeah. see that too much anymore where like stuff is written in like simple language, but written, but yeah. like thoughtful. You can tell that this is, you know, well thought out piece of thinking. Yeah, it's interesting you bring it up because I had exactly the same feeling as a PhD student often that I would read papers from the 50s or 60s and I thought, wow, there's so much stuff in here, yeah. like much more stuff. And also, indeed, yeah, I think you describe it very well. Like it's written in a way that you sort of get it. Uh, but the thoughts behind it are just really kind of new yeah, and much deeper and complex. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. interesting point, yeah, because now I'm thinking maybe our podcast is sort of also trying to get into this you know we read this older stuff maybe that's why it's so nice sometimes to read this older stuff but but anyway i mean actually um you know the tempter is saying that uh, you shouldn't be reading any uh, papers or if you want to be anti-creative you know then you should read the literature all the time that's where yeah. i felt personally attacked because yeah. i i don't know if you, i mean i'm one of those people that i'm like i'm gonna read everything and look at everything before i get started on anything yeah and there i felt a little mm-hmm. like oh Maybe, yeah, nice. I don't know. It nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, nice. And I, I feel there, I actually uh, personally sometimes didn't do that so much. Mm. So when I was doing more empirical research, I would sometimes just think, hey, let's just play around with this or sort of yeah, brainstorm what, it, what would happen if you do something like this. Yeah. And, and for example, I did some studies where I showed, I used Chinese ideographs to, sh- to mm. sort of get people to determine if it was a word or not. And oh, sort of like basically projecting some meaning on a symbol mm-hmm. and and later i of course came across uh, 10 other papers that had done this a decade before but actually i didn't read most of that i just started to play around with it and do it interesting so yeah but that's also the downside then you can reinvent the same thing so i think with a lot of these things 
it feels like good advice, but you can also immediately come up with the other thing. Or maybe I'm just being the sneerer and I immediately <laughs> come up with criticism of all the suggestions to be creative. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah but it would work because yeah. of this and this. Or, but, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he's also yeah. saying that psychologists who are ignorant of intellectual history are condemned to repeat it in their laboratories, right? So he's going, yeah. and that is what's interesting about all of them. Like he gives both sides mm-hmm. of it, right? He'll he, say it's very nice. It is, yeah. yeah. He'll be like, "Well, you want to, you know, you want to have them in a place that doesn't give any emphasis on teaching, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or if they're doing mm-hmm. it, doing it begrudgingly." But he's like, "But some teaching can also be good for you." So there's always like both sides yeah. of the same yeah. point. And you should you shouldn't read the literature. But it's actually very good to do the research that your supervisor thinks is a good idea to get started with, for example, and follow along and work with your supervisor. So it's not like you go completely off the road as well. So it's trying to do something, yeah, maybe the middle road sort of, you know. Yeah, mm yeah. And I thought that was a very, very good point because I know in my area, when I was a grad student, it was mentioned as a positive thing that students were allowed to do whatever they wanted to do. Like you, you, you don't have, they were like, oh, you don't have to do what you're, and it, I, I guess it's sort of PI specific where some people have these big grants and they're just like recruiting people to work on their mm-hmm. projects. Mm-hmm. And that was almost, that I almost heard just being discussed as something that was negative. Like you, but that, and the fact that you're given that sort of latitude to do whatever you want to do is a positive thing. But I do mm-hmm. agree with him mm-hmm. that it's it's very helpful as a new student to come on to a project where other people are already working on something and you're kind of helping out because it, you know, shows you the ropes, like how to do things. And then you're also collaborating with people. And this is hopefully mm-hmm. something that your advisor is also invested in. So mm-hmm. probably a yeah. good thing that everybody's working as a team on something yeah. as opposed to just, you know, each graduate student with their own project. And I think it's very difficult to be very creative if you have complete freedom to do stuff. So I think if you're just starting out, then what are you supposed to come up with? Right. So a little bit of restriction saying, Mm -hmm. well, this is the general direction we're going to. And also, you know, if your supervisor has thought about something and is a bit creative, then Mm -hmm. you can use this to get started. You know, I think that's perfectly fine. Like, unless they have bad ideas, then. Right. Yeah. Um, And he does say that um, how, like, whatever the end result will be, like, it will be as much as your shared work. The amount of effort mm-hmm. you put into mm-hmm. it will determine whether it's shared work or whether it's just something that's your advisors that you're working on, right? I yeah. think so encouraging students to go get onto projects that are already happening, but take some ownership of it and bring their yeah, own exactly. creativity and bring their own thoughts into it, I think is a good yeah. thing. Yeah. And I think that's sort of what you hope even as a supervisor, you know, that you say, I think there's something interesting to get over here, you know? And that's sort of your, hopefully, your contribution because mm-hmm. you had a lot of time to read a lot of things and think about things and maybe you have a bit, developed a bit of a feeling for it, but you also didn't work out exactly how to get this thing. But you just have a sort of hunch, like, I think if we go in this direction, that's an interesting thing to explore. Yeah. Yeah, and then the PhD student takes it and, cre- yeah, gets takes ownership of it. Yeah. And there's a lot of room to do creative research within this field. And it's lovely to see if somebody manages to do this, that you're just like, oh, wow, this is a good, this is a good idea. Uh, yeah, this yeah. is well developed. You know, that, that happens sometimes. Yeah. And it's super cool to see. Yeah. So the next thing he mentions is criticism, which I also thought he made great points. And this is where he's talking about, you know, you can e- about either the have sneers and about mm-hmm, this. Yeah, people mm-hmm, who will mm-hmm. either like tear down. He's like, right. Like we yeah. had so much success in that one one East Coast. I wonder what he's talking. Maybe Princeton. Who knows? <laughs> um, this one. Yeah, um, I don't know. It's something in the US probably. But it, he, 
He's sort of referring. There's some real life references oh, there's a in lot, there. Yeah. We will come back to those maybe. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. You wonder like which which uh, university is he talking about? Where everybody is so scared of the criticism there that you know nobody is producing anything right. worthwhile because they've become so much afraid yeah. of people shooting down their ideas anyway. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure people who are familiar with sort of the history over there mm. would know, would maybe know like um, mm. which which department he's talking about. But yeah, so he does mention here the both sides, right? Either you have people who are mm. super critical of everything and tear mm. down all ideas um, and, you know, inculcate that in their students, or you have people who just give them no critical feedback at all. Yeah. That's the other side. That's and when the I was other reading side. this, I thought you you will also like this. Yeah. So the this culture of, you know, because yes. he's basically saying, look, if you can if you can get them near those critical people, then yeah. that's horrible for their right. uh, you know, creativity. But but he said he sort of laments that people are getting nicer over time, that they used to be more critical in the past. Yeah. Like, yeah, we can't do the trick anymore. But the second best thing is then it's yeah, just have as extremely yeah. kind people right. who are just extremely nice. And and they don't dare criticize anything. And then he's like, "Well, that's the second best." Thing that's we can like, do. yeah, yeah. Um, so <laughs> I like if, it. It's great. Yeah. But if you had to pick, right? Mm, and mm, of course, like mm. the extreme of either version is terrible. But if you had to pick to lean on on either side of this, where would you lean? Mm-hmm. Where which do you think is better for creative work? Yeah, yeah. So it's. I'm going to bet it's sort of personality dependent, but I get mm. the point, And I think he makes a very fair point that if you want to uh, promote creative work mm-hmm. in a bunch of people, because, mm-hmm. you know, this is just like, say, a department culture, for example, then I think um, you want to make sure that people are not shooting down every new idea immediately, mm. you know, mm-hmm. because you can come up. It's true. You can come up with a dozen ways why it's not good. And I was reading it and I was thinking, isn't this just a general brainstorm strategy anyway? When people brainstorm, they always say, in the beginning, we don't judge the ideas. We just generate them. And you're not supposed to say, yeah, but that wouldn't work right now. We Mm. just generate a bunch of them. And then in the second phase, we'll do the evaluation. But if you start to shoot down ideas Mm -hmm. in this first place, it hurts the general creativity part of the brainstorm. Mm -hmm. It reminded me of this recommendation. And I think that is totally fair. Mm -hmm. But I can also imagine that there are some people who really get motivated by criticism. Yeah. So this is the personality driven part. And and if you're like, okay, okay, oh, you shut me down, but I'm going to tweak it right. and turn it around and I'm going to figure some way out so that you can't have any criticism on it. So I think it can be motivating, but it can also be demotivating for other people, I guess. Oh, that's interesting. So I, yeah, I guess I think you are right. That is probably personality dependent. Where do you think you, which, which one, which approach do you think works better for you? Well, I'm pretty sure, uh, I mean, just to give you an answer, you might not expect that during the first two years of my PhD, probably the kindness approach would have been mm. better. And then after a while, I got a little bit more confident and I thought, no, but I think I can do this. And then I think maybe later the sort of critical approach mm. actually motivated me a little bit more. But I think if you would start out with criticism, it might be a bit difficult because you're just like, uh, I don't know what I'm doing, you know? So I think early on, maybe maybe not so much, maybe, mm. you know? Yeah. So moving from the, yeah. And I, think, and I think a big part, a big thing to keep in mind is I think what you think the intention of the criticizer is also matters mm. quite a bit, right? Yeah. So if you know, yeah. if you think, if you, if you think that the person is just trying to tear, and this is good, I mean, this is true even in general feedback that you would give any student mm-hmm. or any mm-hmm. mentee, right? Like if, if they think that you're just giving them critical feedback to tear them down, 
then they're less mm-hmm. likely to take it well, right? Whereas if they're yeah. like, okay, you're giving me all these things that I'm doing wrong, but you're doing it with the intention of making my work better, um, then I mm-hmm. think people are sort of more likely to accept it and yeah. follow it. But in a way, we don't distinguish them that much, I think. So, or at least we'd never really carve away time for the uh, non-critical part. So this in the brainstorm where you just say, okay, for a while, anything goes. Mm-hmm. And, and even with trying out new study ideas, you know, you know what I did? Well, and I think, but if you're a graduate student with limited time and limited resources, right? You, there's mm-hmm. only so much you can mm-hmm. go about being like, oh, now I'm going to try five different studies for, unless you're at a business school, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Well, that's definitely true. So if you can do easy studies, you yeah. can do it. But I have to say, this is exactly what actually happened in my PhD. So I was doing originally research on movement synchrony and feelings of social unity. So this is the start of mm-hmm. my research mm-hmm. uh, career, basically, as a PhD student. But then I was doing all these studies, and I always liked to sort of play around with stuff. And what and there were people in my department who always asked for filler tasks. You know? mm-hmm. So if they do an experiment and they first need to measure one thing, but then they want to have a break, also maybe to fool participants that the two parts are not related, but this is a string of unrelated studies and they need yeah. a filler task. Mm-hmm. And after a while, I figured out like, okay, so there are actually quite a lot of people who just say, does anybody have a filler task? Yeah. So then I started to think about five minute experiments I could do. So I just thought for a while, like, okay, so what are the things I could do? And I came up with something that I kind of found interesting to do. And it was unrelated to anything that I even discussed with my supervisor. But I'm just like, you know, I program a small study. I just do something funny. Mm-hmm. And, and that actually, in, in the end, turned into my PhD. Oh. Because the things were fun. So I think we had this space for complete creativity, I would say, where it didn't matter. Nobody was, was even looking at it. I just played around. And yeah, then eventually it was interesting enough to turn it into the main topic of my PhD, which was nice because this was much faster, easier studies to run <laughs> than having two people in the lab to synchronize their movements. It was really yeah. nice. laborious work. Yeah. But I think it was also more interesting, maybe. I don't know. But um, so, so it's interesting. And now reflecting on it, I actually think so because there was no feedback, no criticism, there was no cost, you could just do anything. It felt like complete mm. freedom, you know? Mm-hmm. If you failed, it had no consequences because those people needed to fill their task anyway. And it's maybe nice And to you can have other to... people collect data from multiple people's labs as well, right? Were other people using these tasks in their, as filler tasks? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. So you just so have a lot just of data, the, yeah. People in the department would just mail around and say, hey, cool. I need a filler task. And after a while, I think they sort of realized, yeah, Daniel always has. Because I would just make them <laughs> nice. and I would just yeah. have them ready, you know, when somebody, somebody asked for it. Uh-huh. So after a while, they just like, yeah, Daniel always has a small task. Nice. You can just go there. Okay. Yeah. Um, but, but I think it's interesting to see how you can carve out space for complete creativity, right? You just do whatever you want. And, and I'm sure that if I would go through the stuff that I tried out, mm-hmm. Uh, there were a lot of bad ideas, let's say. Yeah? So mm-hmm. if you consider it to a brainstorming phase, there was a lot of stuff that was probably pretty bad idea. And it, yeah. you know, you tried something, you're like, no, of course, this is like, no, no, this is just completely uninteresting to do whatever, you know? <laughs> yeah. And then eventually, I mean, I started to do um, pretty much like sort of, yeah, research in a direction that I thought, hey, this is interesting. So, hmm. Hmm. so maybe it's interesting to carve away some more space because I don't feel... Like it's mentioned here that you really have creativity or freedom or to think about something without criticism, right? Because I think we always have it immediately following the study ID. 
Oh, you mean the criticism comes right after the study idea is posed as opposed to giving people more space to just think about things and explore things before you give them criticism. Yeah, I think we are too risk averse. If Mm. somebody comes up with an idea and you see these sort of weaknesses or you think there might be problems, and we're Mm. not talking logical weaknesses because then it's a logical weakness, but you just think, but this would never work because of this or this or this. I don't think we let people play around and just say, I don't think it's a good idea, but go and do it anyway. That's pretty <laughs> rare, I think. Yeah, it does happen, but it but it is rare. Although here I would may- maybe we should draw a distinction between criticism and feedback, right? Because you mm. could think, okay, I will come up with like 10 ideas for a filler task and then put it out for feedback. Mm. And then maybe mm-hmm. if one of them is like, it should be obvious to somebody yeah. who's done it like, you know, for 20 years would be like, oh, hey, this is why this would not work. And that would be good feedback yeah. to have. So then you don't waste your time on it, right? Yeah, yeah. But people, yeah, but, yeah, I, but I think, but I mm. don't think a lot of people are open to that kind of, like, or not not open to, like a lot of people don't give that kind of feedback. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm not sure why, but it's either they're like, oh, I'm too busy. Like, this is just an idea. Like, do it first and then show me and then I will tell you stuff, right? So I have noticed that where you're trying to get people's feedback before you actually do things and you just don't get mm-hmm. a lot of good quality okay. stuff. So maybe mm. there's something to be like, well, you're just, not giving me anything. This is just a half-baked idea. Go do it first, mm. and then then I'll give mm. you my thoughts on it kind of a thing. So, yeah. yeah. But but for the creative process, sometimes people might see criticisms, and they, yeah, they're just wrong. That also happens, yeah. right? It's easy to come up with a criticism. You're like, well, this would never work because and they could be that's wrong, just, not, sure. just, just not how mm-hmm. things work. And then you're like, oh, I guess that is how things work. I wouldn't have expected that, you know? I yeah. think that's the creative sort of uh, thing that you might find. Hmm. Yeah. So anyway, the creativity thing and the criticism thing, it's good to reflect yeah. on where you're putting both and if you give both enough space. That's yeah. that's what I think I got out of rereading yeah. this now. Yeah. And I I mean, I definitely fall more on the side of the the critical people. Like I would much rather be around mm-hmm. people who are more critical if I had an eye. And maybe that's a personality thing, but I also think that given the way science is set up, you will get criticism anyway right Mm -hmm. you'll get criticism for your reviewers you'll get criticism from the general public you'll get right so if you don't and i have heard of people talking uh, like faculty talking about grad students who they realize that the first time like during whatever like a qualifying exam meeting or dissertation proposal Mm -hmm. meeting where Mm -hmm. they actually sort of you know grilled the student a little bit on their ideas and the student completely could not handle it and so i think that that's a problem right if you're not yeah if you're not allowing the students to gain the skill, because it is a skill, right? To be able to deal with criticism head on, mm-hmm. right? And, mm-hmm. I, and I do think we need to develop like a harder skin um, and that needs to yeah. happen. And I, I do think that first needs to happen with people you trust and people who know have mm-hmm. best intentions for you at heart, right? Mm-hmm. And so if, if you're not allowing students the opportunity to, to gain that skill, then I think that's a problem. And, and I'm, I, I am one of those people who does find it motivating. I'm like, I'll, I'll, yeah, sh- I'll yeah. show you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But one of the things that's so nice about this paper, right? So as you are saying this, Uh I just hear uh, Snightly Snightly (laughs) say, you know what? And you should tell them that it's really important that they early in their career learn to deal with criticism. And that is why you're shooting all these ideas down. (laughs) And they will even be grateful for you that you're shooting all their ideas down and they come up up with no creative idea whatsoever. You know, I mean, you you can just hear hear him say it, you know. And then you think, well, maybe maybe you're right. You do need to learn how to deal with criticism. 
But again, you also need to have some freedom to just make mistakes and play around because, you know, every now and then there's a surprise there. Yeah, so it's a, a twist in the story. I'm actually snidely. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. No, but I think um, th this makes yeah. you reflect. I mean, that's yeah. so nice about the paper. You could just think, hey, wait, but if I would, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But yeah, of course, we also need the criticism. But then I think, yeah, um, we do that part probably better than the creative part. So that's why you're, it's good to be reminded of the other side. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe not. You just mentioned you don't always get the criticism. So it can also be wrong in that direction. Right. And then this paper gives you like, oh, actually, we're always too kind. We always say, oh, lovely, lovely, such a nice idea. But we never really push back on an idea. So that's also yeah. not good for creative thought. And right? I think that's worse in the sense that I think that, that you will end up with people who... You will end up with people pursuing ideas that are clear that had clear sort of logical flaws that nobody pointed out to them, and I mm -hmm. think that's worse, right? You're it's there's a bit of yeah. I, I mean, I guess it depends on why people are not giving the criticism, but I it can sometimes mm -hmm. also be condescending, right? If you think somebody can't yeah. handle it, or you are worried mm -hmm. about something else because you don't want to give criticism because you don't want to be called X, Y, and Z, and you know, so there's a bit of like, or, or you don't. You don't care about improving their work. That's actually the worst thing. Exactly. Just like, you you just do whatever care. you want. Yeah. Like I don't think it's very good, but I'm not going to. But tell I'm not going to tell you. Yeah, because because I, either I don't want to yeah. hurt your feelings, or I don't want to get into it, or what you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're right. So I think it's it's a bit more pernicious in my opinion um, versus mm -hmm. somebody who will straight on tell me no. I think you are wrong, and I think this is mm -hmm. why. Like I mean, of course it's not like we've said. You know, like you shouldn't be an asshole about it, but. I think yeah. good good criticism, even if it's given a little harshly, I'm much more okay with than people who, like you yeah. said, right, don't even care enough about your work to offer you their honest feedback. Yeah. 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 Good point. And um, sometimes you don't even need somebody else to become not creative. So mm. another category of things that go wrong in the paper that's mentioned is that people can just uh, do it to themselves, basically restrict their creativity by thinking that they are yeah, too worried about whether they're even smart enough to do this <laughs> yeah. or creative enough. Yeah. And then they become too afraid to just say stuff like, oh, maybe this is a cool thing to do because they're like, oh, but if I say this, people will think I'm stupid. They'll so. sneer at me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is yeah. great because we've talked about this on the podcast before, right? Yeah. On the episode mm -hmm. on intelligence, which I thought was a yeah. good point that he's raising. Yeah, that people and I I mean, maybe it happens less, but, but I've definitely seen it. I think it, a lot of people are just worried to speak up worry to even engage in conversation with other even grad students because they're mm -hmm. like oh that person's so smart like i can't you know i'm like mm -hmm. that's the whole point is <laughs> to of being here is there's smart people that you can talk mm -hmm. to like why worry if they're going to think you're smart or not it's not important if you're smart it's smart that it, it's important that they're smart and you learn from mm -hmm. them but the one thing that made me it's kind of interesting then he pointed the other side of it is like if they're too smart that also mm -hmm. works against them because mm -hmm. then they have more to lose from producing something that's not up to the mark yeah. which i thought was also yeah. a very interesting yeah and i've also seen this i've also seen this i think people that you're just like you're really smart you're mm -hmm. really i mean you know some people are just pretty i don't know talented or yeah. they're in the right place for uh -huh. what they're doing and they have a lot of background knowledge already in yeah. some way and you're like okay you are really on a project where you you this is gonna be fine yeah and then it's not fine because they actually start to worry about themselves right. and they're, you know, they're like yeah. yeah, worrying themselves like, oh my, oh, oh, but it maybe it's even worse if you actually tell them sometimes in the beginning, like, okay, uh, you're clearly smart enough for what you're doing. Because then they're like, oh dear, now the expectations are really high. 
Right. Now I'm supposed to say something really smart or my first study better live up to their expectations and then they get into trouble. It's interesting. It's sort of related to that growth mindset uh, in the this idea in the growth mindset literature about sort of, you know, praising people, like how praise can backfire. Mm-hmm. And I think you okay. also mentioned mm-hmm. it in mm-hmm. your class, right? Performance goals versus learning goals, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. if you have performance mm-hmm. goals where you're just trying to show that you're smart, you might be yeah. less likely to pick like harder tasks. You might be more worried about failing because your yeah. your goal is to sort of show how smart you are. Yeah. yeah. But the, the interesting thing here is that the target that you're trying to reach, basically, that your perform your performance is going towards the expectation you think other people have of you. You know, because often like a performance goal is like, I want to be the best in the classroom or something, which is, you know, but here it is, you're trying to perform in line with what other people expect. Does that make sense? Um, yes, but I would also say that the performance goals are also fall into the latter category, right? At least my understanding category, yeah. of, of like, oh, that's showing that you're smart. Like you're trying to prove that you're smart to, yeah, a, yeah. to other yeah, people. Yeah, no, they're yeah. both performance goals, mm-hmm. but it's more like sometimes the performance goal is just like, I want to pass this class or I want to get the top grade in the class or something. But here, the the performance goal comes from the expectation mm. that other people have of you, which is kind of an interesting goal you want to reach. So it's not like I just want to be better than I was before, but they think I'm going to do something super smart. So now you're and set an unrealistic goal for yourself, basically, of some super smart first study as a PhD student. I don't know. I'm just yeah, yeah, theorizing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Just but- don't shoot down my idea. This is a creative <laughs> new hypothesis in the, you know, master goal literature that I'm proposing here. Don't, don't shoot it down immediately. Come on. <laughs> well, I am a sneerer. I guess we've established that. Um, no, but I was what I was trying to say is that the way you, you're putting it where you're saying that, oh, you're just trying to get better than what you were. To me, that's more of a mastery goal. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, that's a mastery goal, but living up to the performance of someone else sets. Like, imagine, imagine, there's a PhD student, they start, mm-hmm. they show up the first day, you look at them, you say, oh, I can just see you're going to do great things. You're going to, I mean, they'll be paralyzed. They'll be paralyzed because they're just like, oh my God, my first study has to be super smart or they'll be yeah. so disappointed. That's interesting. So the distinction that I think is kind of, that you're pointing out to me that seems more interesting is this like difference between thinking that you want to live up to a standard that you set for yourself. So if you're super smart, you would be like, oh, this is, I think, exactly. the way he's saying it, right? Like that it's, that you think this is not worthy of your intelligence, right? That you might end up doing work that's not, yeah. what does he say? So he says, um, yeah, remember that such people literally have more to lose than to gain by producing something. They know this and live in constant fear of doing work that is unworthy of them. So I think he's yeah. talking more about like stuff that you would think that oh, this is not up to my standard, <laughs> which yeah. I mean, yeah, um, versus what you're saying is also true, right? That if somebody praises you in the beginning of being like, oh, you're so smart, mm-hmm. you're so talented, that might actually lead some people to be like, oh, now this I have others have high expectation of me. And how might yeah. I live up to that? Yeah, I think that's an interesting yeah. distinction. And again, what the paper does very well is basically highlight that you have to keep to this middle way between the two mm-hmm. right here. So neither extreme will work. They'll both backfire in some way. So you have to be, yeah. Right. And I, you know, I mean, we both would agree that your goal should really be mastery goals, right? If you're not, you shouldn't be even be I worried so. about whether you're smart or not. The goal should be to get better than you were, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's very realistic. It's a very realistic goal to do a study where you just try to do the best you can do at a given moment. Yeah. 
And at the same time, it's this weird state where you know it's not going to be the best thing, but you hope it's better than what you did before right. and it's worthwhile yeah. or something. Yeah, it's difficult. But yeah. yeah. So there's this quote by Ira Glass that I absolutely love. It's a bit long, but I want to read it because I think it's perfect mm -hmm. for this um, conversation we're having. He says, nobody tells this to people who are beginners. I wish someone told me. All of us who do creative work, we get into it because we have good taste. But there is a gap. For the first couple of years, you make stuff, it's not that good. It's trying to be good, it has potential, but it's not. But your taste, the thing that got you into the game, is still killer. And your taste is why your work disappoints you. Hmm. A lot of people never get past this phase, they quit. Most people hmm. I know who do interesting creative work went through years of this. We know our work doesn't have the special thing that we want it to have. We all go through it. And if you are just starting out or you are still in this phase, you got to know it's normal. And the most important thing you can do is do a lot of work. Put yourself on a deadline so that every week you will finish one story. It is mm. only by going through a volume of work that you can close that gap and your work will become as good as your ambitions. And I took longer to figure out how to do this than anyone I've ever met. It's going to take a while. It's normal to take a while. You've just got to fight your way through. Hmm. And I thought this was nice. such a nice, yeah, um, encapsulation. Mm -hmm. What we're talking about here was that, which is that when you have people who know that they want their work to be up to a certain standard, the, the initial work is just so disappointing, right? Yeah. Um, and you just have to get past it. And the only way to get past it is by doing a lot, a lot of work. And I will say, I mean, I should heed this advice yeah. a lot more than anybody I know. You should. I really you should. should take the I really I should. It's good mm -hmm. advice, and I'm I'm nothing if not good at taking good advice. But uh, yeah, but I think it's a good point to have, right? That it's 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 initially going to be uh, disappointing, but you just have to go past it. And the only way, and I do think there's some disciplines in which the only way to do really good work is to just do a lot of it. And the beginning, mm -hmm. it's always going to be shitty, right? If you're into writing books yeah. or like you know writing in his case or doing any kind of most kind of creative work, I would say, right? You have to go through a lot and a lot of it to become really, really good. Yeah. And it's interesting because, I mean, uh, this is, I guess, Ira Glass from the This American Life mm -hmm. uh, podcast. So yeah. he's a colleague, basically. He's a direct colleague of us. <laughs> um, but, but, but maybe a bit more creative, you know, maybe also a bit more listeners to the yeah. podcast than ours. But um, it's, I think it makes a lot of sense when you're talking about creativity to take lessons, you know, or advice yeah. from creative people yeah you know yeah, other people because, in creative and other disciplines yeah yeah and i mean as scientists we can be creative but i think if you think about the, a musician or a writer mm -hmm. i mean they must really have a lot of tricks to help yeah. you through this yeah. indeed like a writer should be you know I, th this idea of putting a deadline on there and they're just producing a lot and going through it again and again and again and i think um, some people might feel like I'm going to write the book and this has to be the first thing I write has to be the genius novel or something. The magnum opus, yeah. yeah. It's like yeah. not going to happen, yeah. Unlikely. Unlikely, Very yeah. unlikely. <laughs> yeah. You know, and there, and there are a couple of examples and I think those people then later actually produce nothing else. So I think right. most people who have a good, long, successful writing career, probably the first thing was not their best. Was garbage, thing, but they yeah. just yeah. grow over time. Hmm. Yeah. Good advice. I like it. Yeah. And it's a way to get over this paralyzing thing that mm -hmm. hinders your creativity because you and and it's both optimistic enough to say yeah okay so i have to go through this but eventually i'll get to a certain level where i can start to produce things that really reflect this idea that i have somewhere in the beginning right. nice yeah 
Um, the other thing that he mentions that I also felt a little targeted by was when he's like, mm-hmm. if, you know, trying to formalize everything you're doing before you even know what your idea is. He's mm-hmm. like, if you if you have people who are really into maybe just have some yeah. mathematical skill, just get them into like, you know. And that I think sometimes as somebody who does like statistics, I think I can get really mm-hmm. into the weeds of stuff without sometimes at the cost of, oh, but what's the idea yeah. that we're after? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Trying to formalize things at a too early stage, and th- this made me think of some practice like pre-registration, where you try to, you know, mm. in advance think really, really long and make the perfect study. As I see some people really work on a pre-registration for months or something, you know. Yeah, like me. And then, yeah, yeah and then, but if somebody comes to my lab and we do empirical research, sometimes they're surprised that I will just say. We're just gonna go and do it, you know. We're just gonna do this thing, and and you're and they're like, but we didn't even completely think things <sighs> through, and we didn't even pre-register it. No, we're not gonna pre-register this. We're just gonna collect some data and mm. see what happens. Exploratory because work. I think, yeah, you don't have to. Yeah, I well, would you even could, say but... bad exploratory work. It's just bad exploratory. <laughs> you just get your hands dirty. You just get some real data. You try. You do. You know that this is not gonna be it. You're gonna fail because you didn't think carefully about some stuff. But sometimes I feel it's more efficient yeah. to go and do this and then think again because you have some real stuff and then do the real study, then try to come up with this perfect study out of nowhere. Mm. So I, I kind of agree with this advice. Actually. Yeah, interesting. Um, we might, yeah. So I am, I yeah, I, like I don't like the idea of wasting things, and I think this is where maybe it's just a difference in personality that also shows up but i'm like let us read everything first and see what we can write and Mm -hmm. then before we go and run studies so we don't have to waste you know our time and like participants time and money to collect data right like it is but i think you're right maybe it might be more efficient in some sense so there's a bit of a trade-off right yeah and i think it is exactly this creative component that is never going to happen through this other process yeah that's also why it says but it avoids research waste daniel did we not talk about research waste? Not necessarily. I mean, it could. If if you can read the literature and then come to the perfect study, then it would avoid research waste. But I think often we do things that are require a bit more creativity or novelty. And, and that is not going to come from reading the literature very well, but from, yeah, I don't know, just uh, iteratively trying something. In. That's interesting because I... I might be of the opinion that if you're studying anything in psychology, there's probably some tasks that somebody has done, you know, in the 50s that you could easily adapt that would fit your needs Yeah. in a way mm-hmm. where you don't have to go and tweaking things from like bottom up and trying to make it yeah. into the best thing, but see what somebody has done in the same domain, you know, 50, 60 years ago. And then, and I remember having this experience like where I, I was reading through a lot of like help seeking literature and then I found this task mm-hmm. and I was like, oh, this is perfect. They had done it in yeah, the school and stuff. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, this could easily be adapted for my needs. And it was such an elegant design. Mm, and then you just need to nice. adapt that yeah. thing, right? And you know that there's already yeah. empirical work that exists on it. Somebody has already worked on it. And then you don't have to yeah. reinvent the wheel, right? So I think yeah, that's a good yeah. good way to sort of not reinvent the wheel. Yeah. No, I agree. If that exists somewhere, then then that is definitely preferable. I think often maybe that's not the case or I don't know. I have to say that mm, I actually it's an empirical did maybe question. my Yeah, but I have to say that I just explained that you know, I tried to come up with a task and then I saw somebody else do something the same so that is mm, <laughs> You're proving my mm, point. Mm, a bit, you know. Psychologists know. who are well, not aware of history are bound to repeat them in their laboratories, yeah, Daniel. <laughs> yeah. True, true, true. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Nilius in Verba. 
Our theme song is Newton's Cradle by Grand Brothers. If you have any thoughts, feedback, or comments you'd like to share, you can reach us over email at nelliusinverbapod at gmail.com or our social media accounts at Mastodon or Twitter. This episode was the first of two installments on the anti-creativity letters. In the next episode, we'll continue discussing the challenges one faces when doing creative work. We hope you will join us.